everything in your life is allowed by God, designed by God, shaped by God to make you more like Jesus. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Job chapter 1. I know that Job has a a rap of being a very um, heavy book, and and it is, but it's also tremendously encouraging. And the lessons in this book are obviously eternal. So today we'll be, Lord willing, picking up the last half of Job 1. So the first five verses of Job 1, which we talked about last week, we talked about his character, we talked about his circumstances, we mentioned that very likely lived in an ice age period, a time of geological and climatic disaster, catastrophe that came about as a result of the continental divide in the days of Peleg. Job likely lived between 2800 and 2600 BC, about 500 years prior to the time of Abraham, three to 500. And we mentioned that he was both godly and wealthy, a good family man, and as well as a wise and prosperous businessman. That's the first five verses. Now, beginning in verse 6, we have a very unusual, almost unique in Scripture, behind-the-scene look at what goes on in the realm of the spirituals, in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly places. So God is going to pull back the curtain on this invisible dimension that undergirds and surrounds our physical reality of space and time. We actually live in a very, very small dimension. We look at the physical universe and we think it is all there is. That's not all there is by any stretch because it says God created the heavens and the earth and the earth and all the terrestrial uh, physical space-time universe exists inside a spiritual dimension that, of course, is far, far larger. So this scene is essential if we're going to understand what happened to Job and why it happened to Job. Here's what's unique. Job is completely unaware of what's going on in heaven. But what's going on in heaven has a massive influence on his life. And this is true of us today, the same thing. There's many, many things going on in the heavenly places, and we cannot see what God sees. We don't think like God thinks. And so he says, trust me, live by faith, walk by faith, uh, because things are going to happen to you that you do not understand. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on, trust on, depend on your own brilliance because you're not that brilliant. None of us are, compared to infinite God at that point. So this book really is like a whodunit mystery. You ever watch the mystery on television? And they let you, the audience, see the crime being committed. But the rest of the players in the drama don't see it, and they have to figure it out clue by clue by clue. And you're on the inside because you've seen it up front. You're going, can't you see it's so obvious? That's what's going on. Well, they don't see it because they didn't get the bird's eye view of what went on. So we have the inside track here, the reader of this book, beginning in verse 6. Now there came a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, where do you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. There's our first principle. God is sovereign and everyone is accountable to him, including Satan. God is sovereign and everyone is accountable to him, including Satan. So this is a heavenly throne room scene. And God is where? On his throne throne. By the way, God's throne is never empty because he never leaves it. He's never absent. We sing this song, Our God Reigns, and that's true. And you know what's even more important? He never stops reigning. You never see 
God the Father any place but on the throne. In Job, very important, God is called the Almighty 31 times. And when we're going to see subsequent weeks, Lord willing, what happens to Job and why it happens, you'll understand why it's imperative that you and I understand that God is Almighty. Because in subsequent weeks, you're going to encounter things and I'm going to encounter things that we don't like and that don't seemingly make sense and that we don't understand. And will it be very important for us to remember that God is the Almighty and He is on the throne and in charge. Dawson Trotman the founder of the Navigators, drowned in, a, I, th- I believe it was in a lake in New York, in the 50s, and the entire Navigator staff was just horrified. And they came racing in to, I think his wife's name was Lila, and they said, Dawes is gone, Dawes is gone, Dawes is gone, he drowned. And she very quietly quoted Psalm 115.3, which says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases whatever he pleases. So whatever happens in your life does not happen by accident. It happens by design, God's design. So the heavens are the spiritual dwelling places of God and of the angels. And the heavenly places exist beyond our physical space-time dimensions. The heavens are invisible, but they're far more real than our physical universe. And they are populated by, quote, sons of God. That's another name for angels. Angels are directly created by God. Like Adam, angels, but angels don't have physical bodies. Adam, by the way, was not born. Neither was Eve. They were both direct creations from God. God created Adam out of the ground, and he created Eve out of Adam, but they were created by God. A human being, also a son of man, is someone who was born. Who was the first man that was born? Born of woman. Who? Cain. Somebody reads the Bible. That's good. Cain was the first son of man. He was born of woman. Angels are sons of God. They're direct creations of God. Evidently, the angels, which means messenger, regularly report to God in their activities as they carry out his instructions. God is on the throne, he's managing his universe, and he sends angels out to carry out his wishes to manage his universe, and they are coming back now to present themselves. And the present themselves has the connotation of giving a report, of giving an accountability of their past behaviors. And lo and behold, who is mingled among the angels but this character named Satan? So we're going to spend some time talking about who is Satan. Now, contrary to our popular culture, which characterizes Satan with horns and a long tail and a red suit, and he's carrying a pitchfork to shovel people into hell, the Bible says, in 1 Peter 5.8, tells us, be of sober spirit, be on the alert, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, verse 9, but resist him firm in your faith. 2 Corinthians 11.14 says, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He doesn't show up with a red suit and a pitchfork. He doesn't look like a bad guy. And 2 Corinthians 2.11 commands us to pay attention so that no advantage of us, no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. And you can underline this in your Bible. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. We should not be ignorant of his schemes. We are to be informed. So Satan is your enemy. And Satan comes to earth for two things, to deceive you and to destroy you. And with all warfare, know your enemy is essential for victory. So let's clear up a couple of misconceptions. Number one, Satan is not the opposite of God. There are people in our culture that believe that there are really two gods, God and Satan, and one's good and one's bad, and there are combat over the future of the universe. That's not true. There's only one God one infinite creator. Satan is an angel. He's a created being. He was created by God, and he is finite. Contrary to some opinions, by the way, Satan has never been in hell. He's going there, but he's not there at this point. He is free. He roams around, as we know, and he has access to the throne room of God, as we're going to see in a few moments, and he has access to the earth as well. 
Arnold Fruchtenbaum wrote a book called The Footsteps of the Messiah, and he suggests that one way to understand the career of Satan is to examine where he lives. So let's take a look. There are actually six residences or six abodes of Satan as revealed in Scripture. Ezekiel 28 is going to give us the first insight regarding his history. When you read Ezekiel 28, the first ten verses refer to this human prince of Tyre. There's a, there's a king of Tyre. And he's very proud and very rebellious, and he becomes so powerful and wealthy that he proclaimed himself to be a god. And this human prince who proclaimed himself to be a god was not the real power in Tyre. The invisible power behind this man was Satan, who had fallen to the same sin as this human prince, which was pride. So beginning in verse 11, God gives Ezekiel a new prophecy not about an earthly ruler, but about a supernatural ruler. So if you pick up the parable on the screen, Ezekiel 28, verse 11, again the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on the day you were created, they were prepared. Verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created... This is a profound phrase, until unrighteousness was found in you. So the first abode of Satan, the first dwelling place of Satan, was on the holy mountain of God. Now, anytime the Bible talks about the word mountain, symbolic, it almost always refers to a king, a kingdom, a throne, or a ruler. So mountain has to do with rule and authority. The holy mountain of God is the throne room of God, which we've just seen in Job 1. God is describing Satan, and he says, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. So Satan was the epitome of wisdom and beauty, the highest, the knee plus ultra. No creature was higher than Satan at the moment of his creation. No one was more beautiful, no one was more wise. And God says, you were in the holy mountain. Your second location, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Now, this is not the Garden of Eden as we know in Genesis 2. Genesis 2 and 3 describe a vegetable garden. Verse 13 just appears to describe a mineral garden. He describes precious stones all through this garden that Satan is walking through, and he calls them stones of fire. So this describes precious stones that reflect light. And these stones may have served as Satan's canopy or covering, and there's nine stones listed, three groups of play, three, plus gold. What's utterly intriguing is that many of these stones are the same ones that were listed on the breastplate of the high priest of Israel. The Urim and the Thummim, the, the high priest wore this breastplate, and there were 12 stones on that breastplate, and nine of them are listed here. It's very interesting that it may indicate that Satan had a priestly role in heaven. We know that in heaven there is the tabernacle because God told Moses, I'm going to give you the pattern to build the earthly tabernacle for the children of Israel, and it's a copy of the heavenly tabernacle. So we know there is a tabernacle in heaven because Moses built the earthly copy of it based on the pattern God gave him, and the high priest of Israel wore the breastplate with these stones, and Satan has nine of those at the same time. So it's very interesting and may indicate that Satan had a priestly role in, in heaven. And he says, I gave you your settings and your sockets. There's another, I'm not sure what translation you have, but I think the old KJV says the workmanship of your tabrets and pipes. That refers to musical instruments. Many commentators have indicated that they believe that Satan was not only a heavenly high priest, he was also the choir director the worship director in heaven, and he was responsible for leading the worship of Almighty God in heaven of all the angels. So it's a great position of high responsibility. 
And by the way, that word settings and sockets can also refer to the settings of these gemstones uh, mentioned at that point in time. God describes Satan as you were the anointed cherub who covers. And covers means roof, covering roof, almost a canopy. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen any old cathedrals where the lectern, where the pastor stands and preaches, above them they have this canopy. Now they do that back then because they didn't have what we call electronic amplification, so they had the canopy and it was hard stone and so it would project the voice. So this canopy over the throne was Satan. His job was to glorify the, seat, the one who sat on the throne, which was God. Now in Scripture, there are three angels mentioned. There's angels, and there's seraphim, and then there's cherubim. Angels are before the throne. They're before the throne. You think of a throne, they're on the ground level before the throne, Revelation 5. Seraphim are over the throne, Isaiah 6. Cherubim are under the throne, Ezekiel 1. At some point, God is telling us, Satan, I anointed you as the cherubim who covered. So he was an average cherubim until God anointed him and exalted him above the rest of the angels. So now, God has made Satan the highest of all his created beings. He has perfect wisdom, perfect beauty, perfect power, perfect authority. And God says, you were blameless in the day you were created. So Satan was created perfectly by God. God is not responsible for Satan's sin. On the day Satan was created, God gave him perfect wisdom and beauty, the canopy of stones, the musical instruments, the worship leader, the high priestly role. He was literally the prime minister of heaven. It's interesting that twice in this passage, God says, you were created. He's reminding Satan, who's God? There's only one creator. He was not God. And we know that in the very beginning, the entire creation was good. In Job 38, which we're going to get to in a few weeks, Lord willing, God asked Job 70 questions. When God asks you 70 questions, you're in trouble. Just sing, okay? And he asked them about the creation, Job 38.4. And he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the measuring line over it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Verse 7. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So God's the architect. God's the creator of the physical universe. Morning stars and sons of God in Scripture refers to angels. So it seems, if you look at this, that the spiritual dimensions, the heavens, as well as the angels, were created before the physical creation. Because it says that when God created the physical universe, the angels were witness to it. All the sons of God shouted for joy. Which means that included Lucifer. The fall of Satan had not yet taken place. Lucifer, by the way, was his name before he fell. Lucifer means light bearer, light reflector. After Satan's rebellion, his name was changed to Satan, which means adversary, one who opposes the law. He's also called the devil, which means the one who accuses, the one who slanders, the one who throws accusations like darts. So he's the accuser of the brethren. So what we know is that the end of the sixth day of creation, everything was perfect. How do we know that? Well, God gave us evaluation in Genesis 1.31, and he said, And God saw all that he had made, the heavens, the earth, angelic beings, everything, humanity, vegetation, animals, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening more than the sixth day. So you say, well, how did all of this go bad if God created it all perfect? Lucifer's sin and the origin of evil is recorded in the following phrase, verse 15. Until unrighteousness was found in you. Unrighteousness means wrongs, doings, wrong actions. Now the truth is, ultimately the origin of evil is a mystery. Here's the question. How could a perfect being like Lucifer 
choose to not be perfect. And we do not understand that. In other words, fallen human beings like you and I, we only have one choice without the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to choose to sin. Scripture says we're enslaved to sin, right? So the interesting suggestion here is that Satan had the ability to choose contrary to his nature. He was perfect and he had the ability to choose not to be perfect. We don't understand that. I don't intend to try and explain that. God had given Satan everything a creature could possess, but that wasn't enough. Satan, the creature, wanted the creator's throne. That's why he fell in Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14, verse 12, God is describing and having a conversation, literally describing to Isaiah, but he's talking to Satan, and he says, How have you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn? You have been cut down to earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Here's the principle. God hates pride because it exalts and worships the creature instead of their creator. God hates pride because it exalts and worships the creature instead of the creator. So Satan was the very first sinner, and the very first sin was pride. And Satan's sin of pride is summarized by five I wills. I will ascend into heaven. He was already the highest creature ever created in the universe. All that was left was the throne of God himself, and he wanted to sit on God's throne. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Stars generally refer to angels. So Satan wanted to be the sole authority over all the angels in God's place. He wanted to depose Michael, actually become the sole archangel himself. He said, I will sit on the mount of assembly or congregation. That refers to Israel. Satan wanted to be the Messiah who rules over Israel. That position had already been taken by Jesus Christ, right? And future looking. Number four, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Clouds always symbolize God's glory, the Shekinah glory that belongs to God alone. And Satan wanted to ascend above God's glory. He wanted the worship that belonged to God alone. And last, I will make myself like the Most High. In Scripture, when God describes himself as the Most High, he's talking about the one who possesses the heavens and the earth. And Satan wanted to possess everything that God created in Genesis 1. So this is absolute rebellion, insurrection, mutiny against the authority of the Creator. The creature has now rebelled against the Creator. Isaiah 14 tells what happened. Ezekiel 28 tells us how it happened. Ezekiel 28, verse 16. By the abundance of your trade... You were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. And I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. Satan was the original narcissist. He was corrupted because of his splendor, his wisdom, his beauty, his authority. He worshipped himself more than God. He was spent way too much time looking in the mirror, as we would say. Not only did he worship himself more than God, he wanted everyone else to worship him more than God as well. He refused to acknowledge that his wisdom, his beauty, his authority came from God. He thought it came from him. And this is the essence of pride fascinating phrase. It says, by the abundance of your trade or your traffic. It seems clearly to indicate that Satan spent a lot of his time going from angel to angel to angel in heaven and slandering God and bad-mouthing God and seeking to draw the angelic allegiance away from God to him. Now, if you want to know who did that on an earthly plane, look at Absalom. Absalom was going to overthrow his daddy David, and Absalom met in the gate with everybody who came in to see the king, and he said, you know, if I was king man, you would have justice, because my old man is not giving you justice, and he's getting too old and tired, 
And so it says over a four-year period, he stole away the hearts of Israel. He brought their allegiance from the true king, David, to himself. That's what Satan spent time in heaven doing, slandering God and drawing an allegiance together to overthrow God. So the very first lie that was told in all of the universe was not to Eve. It was to angels. Satan essentially said, God is not worthy of your loyalty and worship. You should follow me, not God. And that's why Jesus said Satan is the father of lies. Revelation 12, 3-4 seems to indicate that he was pretty persuasive. Seems to indicate that a third of the angels in heaven decided to follow him in mutiny against God. We call them demons or fallen angels. God the Father says, therefore, because of this rebellion, I cast you as profane from the mountain of God. Profane means common, as opposed to holy. Holy means set apart, pure, unmixed. Profane is common. Gold is set apart. Asphalt is common, right? You walk on that stuff. So as a result of his rebellion, Satan was deposed from his exalted position as a priestly worship leader. He was fired as the prime minister of heaven. God humbled him by throwing him on the ground and from the human king. So as a result, right now, Satan does not live in heaven. He lost his position and he lost his right to live there. Satan's operational sphere right now is the atmospheric heavens. Ephesians 2.2 tells us that Satan is what? The prince of the powers of the air. Ephesians 6.12 tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual hosts of wickedness, where? In the heavenly places. Now, Satan is a spirit. He's a disembodied intellect. He has emotions, intellect, and will. He's a real person. He lives in the air, but he has access to the earth. So he comes to earth on a regular basis. He also visits heaven on a pretty regular basis. Remember, after Satan forfeited his rule by his rebellion, God gave Adam the governorship of planet Earth. Adam was supposed to be the vice regent and govern the Earth for God. Well, Satan is not stupid. He had been very successful in leading a mutiny against God among the angels. One-third of them followed him. So when God appointed Adam governor, Satan said, I'll go tempt Adam and Eve just like I tempted the angels, and maybe it'll work. And he said what? He said, you can be like God. It's the same thing he fell from. He fell from pride. He wanted to be like God. He told the angels he was worthy of worship, and they transferred their worship from God to him. He tried the same thing with Adam and Eve, and guess what? They took the bait. Hook, line, and sinker, right? You can be like God. You'll know good and evil. Well, that was partially true. They now knew evil, but they certainly weren't like God. So when they disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, they lost their rule over the earth. And Satan is now God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. So when Satan comes to earth now, he's going to come under two guises. He comes as a roaring lion, seeking to devour and destroy, or he comes as an angel of light, seeking to deceive. You know that. 2 Corinthians 11. So when Satan enters heaven, it's to accuse God's people and slander them to God. We're going to talk about that because it's exactly what he does with Job in a couple of verses. We've gone through the three locations of Satan. The last three are future. We know that halfway through the tribulation, there's going to be war in heaven, and Satan and all his demons are going to be confined to the earth. Revelation 12. And Scripture says, woe to the earth. I don't know how many angels there are, but one-third of them are fallen angels, and they are going to be confined to the earth during the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. And that's why it's the bloodiest period in human history. At the end of the tribulation, Revelation 20 tells us that Satan will be cast into the abyss for a thousand years. And after Christ reigns for a thousand years, Satan's going to be released from the abyss for a short period of time. He's going to lead a failed final revolt against God, and he's going to be cast in the lake of fire forever and ever. And that'll be the first time he's in the lake of fire, right? So back to Job 1. I went through this because I want you to understand the spiritual context of what goes on behind the scenes so you understand when Job, what happened to him, why it happened to him, because you and I are in Job's position. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but we know something is going on behind the scenes. Satan accused Job, Satan accuses you before the throne every 
day because you and I sin every day. Verse 8, Job 1. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man fearing God and turning away from evil. Wow. Whose assessment is that? God's assessment. Man, put that on your headstone. Signed God. That would be really the only assessment approved unto God. A-U-G, that's the only degree you want. Verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the works of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Here's the principle. God is worthy of worship because he is God and he is good. God is worthy of worship because he is God and he is good. Now in the throne room scene, God challenges Satan and Satan calls him to account, where have you been? Satan says, I've been all over the earth checking things out. Satan never does anything without purpose. He is looking for opportunities to attack you and he's looking for opportunities to watch where you sin so he can run back to heaven and accuse you. Either attack or accuse or both. We know that's true because Revelation 10, 12 says, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the suffering of and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. Here's the part that's important. He who accuses them before our God day and night. So Satan's the prosecuting attorney. He accuses God's people day and night. Fortunately, we have an advocate with the Father, a defense attorney called Jesus Christ, who is the son of the Father and who has been given all authority to judge, and he doesn't lose any cases. And God calls Job my servant. By the way, in the Old Testament, that is the highest honor appellation possible. You can't get any better than the servant of the Lord. God found nothing wrong with Job, but Satan did. And here's Satan's essential argument. Satan says, look, God, Job worships and obeys you because you protect and prosper him. This is just a contract. He doesn't love you. He loves the goodies you give him. You give him health and wealth. I mean, 10 kids that get along. Now, that's a miracle, right? They're adults and they get along and they celebrate. And, you know, I mean, come on, that is a supernatural miracle. You give him power, you give him prestige. Satan says, Job is not pious, he's selfish. God, you are not worthy to be worshiped because you have to bribe Job to serve you. If you didn't give him the goodies, he's out of here. Prove, God, to all the angels that humans value you more than your blessings. Give me access to Job. I will take away everything you have blessed him with, and he will curse you to your face. And you know where he says this? This is not a sidebar conversation between Job and Satan. This is a public challenge to God on the throne in front of all the angelic host who are witnessing this direct confrontation by Satan to God. So Job's faith is going to be tested to the limit. And all of this was planned by God. God is the one who called Satan's attention to Job because he already knew what Satan was going to propose. Satan wants to dishonor God in front of the angels by causing Job to reject God. And God allows Job to be tested. And God allows us to be tested. Lots of reasons. One, he wanted to strengthen Job's faith. He wanted to draw Job closer to God, and he wanted to bless him even more. Two, God allowed Job to be tested because he wanted to demonstrate to the angelic host that humans serve God because God is worthy of worship and God is good. Three, God allowed Job to be tested because he was going to reveal to the angel that Satan is a loser. And rebellion against God is futile. 
And four, I mean, there's other ones. God allowed Job to be tested for you. He wanted to give you and I an example of endurance and faithfulness and suffering so that we can endure when we suffer. And I want you to notice something. Satan is limited by God's leash. And I can hear some of you saying, God needs a shorter leash on that character. You know, put him on a choke chain and tow him right close. Well, he's on a leash, but God is the one who determines how long that leash is. And the rules of this test are clear. Satan's going to strip away all of Job's possessions from him, including his children, and the entire heavenly host is watching Job to see how he responds. And Job knows none of this. But you do. Verse 13. Now on the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, right behind him, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep, and the servants had consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And you think you've had a bad day. Just a little perspective. Here's the principle. God is not the author of evil. But he uses all circumstances, even disastrous ones, to accomplish his good purposes. God is not the author of evil, but he uses all circumstances, even disastrous ones, to accomplish his good purposes. So it's pretty clear that Satan is malevolent. He is evil, he hates God, he hates God's people, and Satan looks for ways to maximize pain and suffering. The timing of these events occurring all at once reveal that Satan does have some God-allowed influence over people and even nature. Remember when Jesus was, was in the boat across the Sea of Galilee with the disciples? They're sailing about six miles from the west side to the east side, and the, or the east side, yeah, and this storm comes up, and it's just massive storm. And the disciples are old hands on this lake. They've been fishing the Sea of Galilee since they were kids, and they were terrified. This was no ordinary storm. And Jesus stilled the storm. He said, peace be still, hush, and it became quiet. He wasn't talking to molecules of air and water. Jesus was commanding the forces behind the wind and the waves who were trying to sink the boat and drown him and his disciples. So back to Job, Satan orchestrates all these events to occur at one time. Why? He wants to maximize the chance that Job will be overwhelmed and curse God, and he'll win his bet with God. So Satan obviously uses people to accomplish his purposes. The Sabaeans were nomadic Bedouins, and they lived in modern-day Yemen down south. The fire of God may have been lighting, more likely a volcanic event, burning tephra, flying through the air, toxic gases to kill all the sheep and the servants. The Chaldeans here at this point in time were not the Chaldeans of Babylonia. They were a regional group of marauders, clearly very, very sophisticated. And the great wind from the wilderness was perfectly timed by Satan to kill Job's children at precisely the right time. The wind and all of these originated from Satan, but all of them were allowed by God. Even though Satan's the author of evil, nothing happens in the universe without it crossing God's desk for approval. There is no event that occurs in your life that God does not allow to occur. You and I don't understand why most of the time. But you understand that you have a loving Heavenly Father who allows it for His good purposes and ultimately your blessing. So Job now has lost his wealth. He lost his livelihood. He buried 10 children, which I, my mind just goes numb. I have no idea what it's like to bury 10 children in one day. They've died in one blow. 
and heaven is watching to see how he's going to respond. Verse 20. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Here's the principle. When you worship God, you submit to his sovereign control over everything in your life. When you worship God, you submit to his sovereign control over everything in your life. You know, we come to church, and I've said this before, we sing these songs, I Surrender All, and all this other stuff that we say we really don't mean. God calls us on it on Tuesday morning, you know, that's when you find out whether you mean it or not. But when you're worshiping God, you are saying, you are the creator, I am the creature. You are sovereign, you can do whatever you want in my life, whenever you want it. And I submit to that. Which means you're in control, and I'm not. And since we're sinners, that's tough to say. On the one hand, we have the Holy Spirit who prompts us to speak truth because we live the truth. On the other hand, our flesh goes, oh, if I was only in charge, I would do this differently. Yes, that's because you're not in charge, right? So Job tears this close. It's a sign of intense grief and mourning. So was shaving your head. He falls to the ground in a posture of worship before God. He trusted God's wisdom more than his own. He said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Since God owns everything, it's his prerogative to do whatever he chooses, whatever belongs to him. You believe that? Since God owns everything, it's his prerogative to do whatever he wants with whatever belongs to him. I'm going to change one word. Two words. Since God owns everything, including me, it's his prerogative to do whatever he chooses with whatever belongs to him, including me. Job states an obvious truth that we often forget. We came into this life with nothing. And we're going to leave it with nothing. Hearses don't pull U-Hauls, and it wouldn't do any good anyway. However, while we're here on earth, God gives and God takes away. And it's his prerogative to give, and he takes away. Now, I want you to know that when God gives, you have responsibility. When he takes away, you no longer have responsibility. When God gives you children, does he give you responsibility? Say yes. Of course he does. When they grow up and leave home, generally, generally, not always, God takes away that day-to-day -day responsibility. Some of us are praying that that day-to-day -day responsibility would leave, even though they're 32 or whatever it is, right? If God gives you a spouse, you have a stewardship over that spouse. If you don't have a spouse, you don't have that stewardship. If God gives you friends or neighbors or colleagues at work, right, you have a stewardship. When God decides to take those relationships away for whatever reason, you no longer have that stewardship. Now, we have opinions about God's giving and taking away, do we not? Have you ever decided that it would be a good job description for you to advise God about what he should give and what he should take away and when he should do it, right? We typically rejoice when God gives us something that we think is good, right? And we generally weep when he takes away that which we think is good. And we are grateful when God takes away things that we don't like, and we complain when he adds things to our lives that we don't like. But God is sovereign over the giving and the taking because he has purpose in all of that. He gives and takes for reasons most of the time that we do not understand, but his reasons are eternal. And we know what they are. Romans 8.28 we quote all the time. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, that's his children, 
to those who are called according to his purpose. That's all of you that know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. You are his children. He's called you for that purpose. Well, what's the purpose? That you may be conformed to the image of his Son. So everything in your life, and I've said this before, I'm reminding you, you already know this, everything in your life is allowed by God, designed by God, shaped by God, to make you more like Jesus. So when God gives something to your life, it's designed to make you more like Jesus. When God takes something away from your life, it's designed to make you more like Jesus. We humans tend to forget that. We go, oh God, take this pain away, please. God says, in my infinite wisdom, I know that the, that's what you need right now. I'm going to bless you with pain because that is the tool I'm going to use to shape you like Jesus. And we say, I promise, I'll be obedient without the pain. Your father knows what you need better than we know what we need. I'm utterly intrigued that when pain comes, God brings, allows suffering, allows trouble, trials, struggles. We always do what? Why, God, did you allow this? But we never do that when good stuff happens. You know, you get a promotion, you get money, you, your kids miraculously say, thanks, Mom and Dad, for everything. Your grandkids come up and hug you and go, oh, I love you so much. You get up in the morning or you go to bed at night and the AC works. You get up in the morning and you pull the plug in your shower and you get clean, hot water. And you don't have to walk to work because you turn the key, and the car starts most mornings. And we don't say, oh God, why did you bless me with all this wonderful stuff? I wish I don't deserve this stuff. No. When the good stuff happens, we go, of well, of course. I mean, who else would it be? C'est moi, c'est moi, man. You know, I mean, I deserve this stuff. Really? We blame God for the bad stuff. And we take credit for the good stuff. We should, as Job did, worship God for all of it. Because our Heavenly Father knows what we need and he wants to make us like Jesus. That's the whole point of this earthly exercise is to shape you more like Jesus and, as Pastor Roger said, get people to Jesus. We have a job description here because Jesus is a lot of people here he wants to make like him. Many of them are your relatives. I'm serious as a heart attack. I know that you are a praying group, and I give much thanks to God for you. Keep beating down heaven for your kids and grandkids. Don't stop. You keep praying. You keep banging on heaven's door for them because they need to know Jesus as well. So Job didn't understand God's purposes. But by faith, he submitted to God and whatever God chose for his life. So God trusted Job enough. He entrusted him with sorrow and suffering. And God trusts you right now enough to entrust you with trials and troubles today. And, even more shocking, he trusts you enough to give you blessings in the belief that you won't abuse them. And you will not think you no longer need him because you're healthy and wealthy and you're large and in charge. Sometimes affluence is deadly. And one of the greatest curses of our culture today is comfort. The God of comfort. You know, I want it peaceful and easy. Well, you don't get in shape by laying on the couch and watching TV in a recliner and exercising your fork and the thumb for the remote. You don't get as strong that way. You get strong by pushing against resistance. The same thing is true of your faith muscle. God wants us strong, and he's going to give us spiritual exercise. And Job has a whole batch of it, and Lord willing, the next few weeks we're going to look at that. C.S. Lewis was once asked, why should the righteous suffer? He replied, why not? 
They're the only ones that can handle it. Let's summarize. Number one, God is sovereign, and everyone's accountable to him, including Satan. Number two, God hates pride because it exalts and worships the creature instead of the creator. Number three, God is worthy of worship because he is God and he is good. Number four, God is not the author of evil, but he uses all circumstances, even disastrous ones, to accomplish his good purpose. And I put the disastrous there in, in, in quotations because there are no disastrous circumstances from God's point of view. All of them have purpose. From our standpoint, it may be catastrophic. And God has good purposes and everything. And lastly, when you worship God, you submit to his sovereign control over everything in your life. Now, this, this passage talks about one event in Job's life. It's imperative to understand that worshiping God was not something that Job only did when he was in the middle of catastrophe. He had a habit in the middle of blessings. He worshiped God every single day. He was faithful in humbling himself before the Lord and acknowledging that all the blessings he had came from God as well. He's a very good model father, as we talked about last week, after all his birthday celebrations, his children's seven sons, they had a birthday celebration every birthday, he would sacrifice an animal for them. The innocent, obviously, animal as a substitutionary symbol of a of, 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 of substitutionary vicarious sin. And he prayed for his children on a regular, regular basis. So when he fell down and worshipped, as Pastor Roger said multiple times, when you enter a crisis, you will enter it as you are. You will not have time to prepare for the crisis and get spiritually mature when you get the phone call. You're going to face the crisis with whatever degree of maturity you have. Obviously, Job is demonstrating here that he was blameless, upright, feared God, and turned away from evil because in the worst catastrophe of his life so far, he has stayed rock solid, focused on Jesus, focused on God, and uh, bless the Lord and worship the Lord for whatever the chose, Lord chose to give him. Um, thank you for being here. This is going to be a fascinating study. I am so intrigued by Job. I was talking to someone earlier, and I said, I've been attending church probably pretty regularly for 50 years, and I've never heard a series on Job. And so I thought, well, let's do a series on Job. God has many, many, many lessons for us here. You know that I love you. Now that you know, do. do.